Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today we're chatting with David Mifsud, co-founder and board member from Missouri Star Quilt Co., one of the most interesting brands that we've ever spoken to. David is passionate about quilts, but more importantly, what they represent, which is people's innate desire to create and connect. Now, you may have heard of Missouri Star. They've received incredible press, scaling to tens of millions of dollars in sales since beginning as a fallback plan during the financial crisis of 2008. On this podcast, you're going to hear all about why you should never call a quilt a blanket, the origin story of a quilting empire, the mechanics of Missouri Star's daily deal, which has been a huge lever for success for their growth, and how building Quilt Town USA revitalized small town America and led to incredible PR. Hope you enjoy this one. On with the show. We have this daily deal that goes up every single day at midnight, but what we do with it is we write this daily deal story, usually two to three paragraphs long, and it's something that will elicit emotion. We want people to feel something when they read that. We want them to laugh, we want them to cry because it was touching, we want to pique their interest or their intellect. We've gotten thousands of emails from people saying, whether I buy your daily deal or not every day, I get up every morning with my cup of coffee and it's the first thing I read. And so we've created this habit because we've added value through this marketing piece. And I think at the beginning, a lot of companies got that wrong. They didn't add value to people's lives. They simply marketed to them. This podcast is sponsored by Klaviyo, the email and text marketing platform that puts D2C brands in control. If you're the leader of a D2C brand, you need a platform that hustles as hard as you do. Klaviyo unlocks the power of your e-commerce data so you can personalize and automate messages that keep customers coming back. D2C brands communicate with Klaviyo, Get started for free at klaviyo.com slash DTC. Welcome to the D2C podcast, David. Let's start really simply. What exactly is a quilt? That's sort of an offensive question to ask a quilter. Now, I've only made one quilt and it was a massive king size quilt. So I will answer your question. But because uh, you were asking before, what's the difference between a quilt and a blanket? Yeah. And you, you, could, you can make a quilter mad by even insinuating that they're in the same universe. But what makes a quilt and a blanket difference is a quilt, you start with a quilt top. And that's really the artistic part of the quilt where you take all kinds of shapes and patterns and you, and you sew them together to make the quilt top. And that can, there's a million combinations and permutations. And then what you do is once you're done your quilt top, you've got the stuff in the middle of the quilt, which is a batting and there's different thicknesses essentially. And then you've got your backing and you pick some beautiful backing and you take those three layers and you make a sandwich. And then when you stitch those three layers together, on a frame if you're doing it the old school way and you can a bunch of you and your quilting friends can get together and have a, what's called a quilting bee and you quilt your your quilt on a frame and it takes a long time or you can do it at home on your sewing machine or the third way is you can take it and you can send it off to be machine quilted professionally by someone who has what's called a long, long arm quilt machine which is like a machine that's the size of a room and the same price as a car and they'll, they'll charge you a, a per square inch price and you can get it quilted that way but once those three layers are quilted together that's a quilt. That's a quilt. I asked it slightly tongue in cheek. Uh, throughout my life, quilts have been my favorite blanket. And again, not blanket, my favorite covering, let's call it. <laughs> uh, they, there's something about them. There, there's the weight to them. There's the comfort. They're, they always seem cooler than other blankets, like literally like I cool to the touch, I mean. Uh, so so thank you for this, this background on exactly what a quilt is. Now, let's talk about why your quilting company. Let's talk about why Missouri Quilt Co. How, tell, give me the origin story. It's such an interesting one. Well, I mean, it, it really goes back to my, my two business partners are from a family called the Doan family. So I met uh, 
Alan Doan, who's one of my partners in Ukraine. We were actually missionaries together there. Uh, we uh, learned Ukrainian together and, and went all around the country. And it was we had a blast and became really, really great friends. And after we got back home, um, you know, I went to school for finance. He went to school for um, computer science or IT systems or something like that, something technology. And uh, he, he lives in Missouri. I live up in Canada. And we always thought it would be cool to, to do some kind of business venture together. So when I was first married, we just had one, one child. I've got four now at the time. He moved up and lived in my house. He's six foot seven. And so it was like the movie Me, You and Dupree. And he sings really loud in the shower. And so anyways, we, we actually started three businesses together, one of which was uh, the online portion of Missouri Star. Now, Missouri Star kind of has a, uh, it started before that. What happened was this was 2008. And as you know, that was the great financial crisis. The last one. Well, yeah, exactly. And so the, uh, the Doan family, they had moved out from California because their youngest son had a, a tumor and they actually had really, really huge financial strain put on them because of medical bills. So they just literally close their eyes, put their finger on a map, and that's it. They're going to go to Missouri, rural Missouri. And Jenny, uh, when she was in California, she was really into theater. In fact, she was a costume designer. She was a great sewist uh, in, at making costumes for theater. But in, in where they moved to in Missouri, there really wasn't a lot of a, or a big theater scene. And so she got into quilting and, and actually became really good at it. And noticed that she could make quilts that people thought took her a lot of time, the quick and easy way. And so she just kind of had an act for it. And... At this time, uh, Ron, uh, who's a great man, the father of the family, was supporting seven children. He was working as a machinist at the Kansas City Star newspaper. Uh, the newsprint industry, obviously, the, the physical newsprint industry uh, was kind of starting to sink just because people were going digital. And on top of that, it was uh, 2008. And so they laid off a whole bunch of people in his department. And I think he was one of the only people that didn't get laid off. But now he had no seniority, and so he went back to night shifts, and you know he's, I think, getting close to 60 at this point. And so the writing was on the wall, there'd be more layoffs. And so two of the Doan children, Al and, and Sarah, they decided that they would hopefully figure out some business they could start for their parents so that they could have a retirement, because otherwise, you know, they could be in big trouble. And so, like I said, Jenny, Jenny had gotten to quilting, and as I said earlier in, in the interview, when you, when you quilt, you can send your machine in to a professional to get it quilted. And this is what she did. She made a quilt. She's like, I don't have time to, to quilt it myself. I'm going to send it to somebody. And this person that was local to her said, yeah, I can do it, but you're, gonna, you're on a wait list. It's going to be about a year till I get to it. And uh, they couldn't believe that there was that much demand for quilting, that there would be a year, year wait list. And they said, well, mom, why don't you buy one of these machines? We'll get a loan. We'll buy you one of these machines. And you can quilt for people because there's obviously enough demand for it. And this could kind of be your business in case dad loses his job. So that's that's how it started. And the three of us were never really going to get involved with the business. This was just something that, that Jenny would run. And uh, and so they bought this quilt machine for, I think, around $40,000. And they bought a around 10,000 square foot building to put it in. Believe it or not, the building they put it in was only $20,000. So it cost half the price of the machine. That's, that's the real estate in, in rural Missouri for you. Um, and so... They had this building with mostly just empty square footage and this quilt machine in it. And they, they said, well, if we're going to be quilting people's quilts, maybe we can buy a few products to sell as well. And so they bought a few things. And so they had a little brick and mortar shop, but really it was just centered around quilting people's quilts. And so when, when Al moved up to uh, Canada and lived with, with me and my wife and, and our daughter for six months, we started three businesses. One of them was the online portion of Missouri Star. Because we knew that, you know, brick and mortar in a, a town of 2,000 people in, in the middle of Missouri is not 
probably going to do really well unless you have some uh, ability to sell online. And so that, that it's was not it. a boom town. No, no. In fact, uh, one of the big, I think, success stories of our business is we've, we've helped turn around this, this little town that has these beautiful old buildings that were built at the turn of the century that were starting to really fall into to severe disrepair. The brickwork and the tuck pointing and, and all of that was just really needed work. And so we, uh, we actually have, since we started this, have bought up almost all of Main Street. We have 13 stores, uh, quilt shops. We have a, a hotel that you can stay at. We have three restaurants. We have a, a theater that we bought for big giant trunk shows and seminars and classes. Uh, we've got a quilt museum. This has been called the Disneyland of quilting. They call it the Disneyland of quilting. We call it Quilt Town USA. And people come from all over the world to see it. Like literally, I've, I've been there during the summer and all of a sudden a bus tour, like, like literally one of those coach buses pull out and like 40 ladies get out from all over the world, South Africa, Australia, England, and they just descend on the town like locusts. And it's, it's great for us because, you know, that quilters like to, to buy a lot of fabric. Some, some people say quilters are almost borderline hoarders. They have rooms in their house just dedicated to fabric and we're okay with that. I believe it. And you mentioned something earlier on too, when you were talking about um, Jenny realizing that she had this, it's almost like quilt arbitrage when she's like, people think this takes me a really long time, but it actually doesn't take me that long. And that right there is almost like anytime you can find those instances, it's like then, okay, there, there there's a real market there potentially. So is that sort of the way you guys have taken it with the idea of like being able to sell presets of things ready to go into quilts? Yeah. So there's, there's always been kits. Kits are like where you just, you, you essentially buy all the pieces to make a quilt and they try to minimize the amount of cutting that you do and you put them together. But one of, one of the things I think that was part of the recipe of our success is for quilting specifically, the th I would say the three barriers to, to people wanting to quilt is number one, they think that it's way too time consuming. The second thing they think is it's the, the skill level is it's just way beyond me. It's, it's the amount of skill you need is, is, is beyond what I could do. And then the third thing is it's too expensive. And I think, what we did is we broke down those three barriers for people. We started using these. Um, so the way it works in, in the fabric world is believe it or not in quilting and sewing, when you go to like a fabric store and you buy fabrics on the bolt, fabric is actually a designer industry. Meaning like a quilt designer will design a fabric line that has all kinds of prints that really jive together in terms of color value, in terms of the print style and different print scales. So a collection of fabric may have like 40 SKUs and they all go together. And that fabric collection is only available for like anywhere up to like a year, but sometimes it's gone in six months. So if you don't buy that fabric now, you'll never get it. And that's why I think these quilters, they, they go into quilt stores. Um, and, and even, even I, I, I'm the same, like, I'm like, that's such beautiful fabric. I kind of need to have like a yard of this and a little bit of that, because if I ever want to make something with it, it's going to be gone in the future. So you got to get it now or never. So it's, it's kind of fashion because it's, it's original artwork. The design is done in the U S mostly and in Canada. And in somewhat in Europe, and then all of the uh, textile production is done overseas, mostly in South Korea. And so, um, again, like it's you're really buying artwork that there's a limited printing of. And so, what what happens is most traditional quilt stores they sell fabric on the by the yard on a bolt. And if you want to make a quilt, you got to buy a quarter yard of this and a quarter yard of that. And you take a bunch of bolts to the counter and you put them all against each other to make sure that they match in terms of color, like the colorways go together and the prints and everything. But what happened is uh, one of the, these companies at the time, Moda, they came up with a what are called pre-cut fabrics, where what they do is they, they give you like, let's say a five inch or 10 inch square of one of every, one or two of every piece of the collection. So you get this 
they call them charm packs, the five inch squares, and they call them layer cakes, the 10 inch squares. They also have rolls, which are two and a half inch strips times, I think, 42 inches. Those are called jelly rolls. They all have delicious names. And so you can buy these and there's all kinds of patterns that go with these pre-cuts that you can make these beautiful quilts with. And so we really jumped on the pre-cut train and we worked with a lot of vendors over the years to, to get more and more of them on, onto pre-cuts. And we made a lot of our YouTube tutorials centered around what we call uh, the Lego blocks of quilting, like pre-cut fabric. And it really takes a lot of the, the time, the skill level and expense out of quilting, but you still end up with something that makes people think that you took forever to make, but you actually made it in an afternoon or two. Amazing. Well, let's let's dive into YouTube a little bit because I know it's been a critical part of of your growth. Did th- did the company start before the YouTube presence start, or or was Jenny on YouTube before the company started? No, the company started first. So when when Al and I created the website, you know, we maybe had like I don't know a hundred products on there, and finally the site goes live, and we we built it on Magento, and we're like, all right, site's live, and then we just sat there and we're like, okay, where's the sales and crickets? No, nobody, right? Because you think as soon as I put something or as soon as I open my doors to my store, customers are going to come and I'm going to start making money, right? And so we realized very quickly that we had to come up with something to get people to our site. We had literally no money. Both of us, like I said, we were (laughs) essentially college students. So we didn't have a marketing budget. So we had to be creative in in how we got uh, customers. So we we basically got a whiteboard uh, in my little office in my three-bedroom semi-detached house and we, um, we started just writing down every marketing idea we could. And so we obviously, social media back then was not nearly saturated like it is now. Um, and so we, we went on YouTube and, and we saw that there was very few quilting channels and the ones that existed, like the, the content was, for lack of a better word, pretty lame. And we were like, oh, this is, this is great. Like this is ready for disruption. Uh, same with on Facebook. There wasn't anyone doing anything super interesting. Um, and so I had bought like because my daughter was born, I had splurged and was like one of the first like people that bought an HD camera. So Al took that down and he, he's like, mom, like you're great. You have a great personality. You've been in theater. Why don't you do some tutorials? And so that was kind of this, the start of it. Like he filmed his mom doing tutorials, the quick and easy way using pre-cuts to quilt. And, uh, surely slowly, but surely we built our YouTube presence up to the point where we now have, um, over 230 million views and almost 800,000 subscribers. So it's the biggest YouTube channel for quilting in the world. That's unbelievable. And what an audience too. Like when you, they're not just buying a product, they're putting their family stories into these products. They're putting their love, they're putting, you know, it's it's really like, it's a really folk product. Well, it is, it is really in, in a sense, like, cause if you think about it, like people don't make quilts because of the practical value. Sure, they can keep you warm and people love, you know, you know, cuddling up and watching Netflix with their quilt. Of course, there is a practical value, but really what you're selling is, is passion. Like people want to, we actually believe at our company that every human being has an innate desire to create. Everyone who's born on this earth wants to create. Now there's different forms of creation. Some people do it through watercolor painting or art, or some people do it through quilting. Some people do it through, my, my kids do it through Minecraft. They go in a whole different world and they build buildings and, and change landscapes. Some people do it through horticulture and and growing things and and creating brand new plant life that didn't exist. Everybody likes to create in some way. And we we really believe that at the core, that that's our mission is to help inspire and empower people everywhere to create. And that's, in fact, our company now is not just quilting. We're called Creativity Inc. And we have watercolor painting, crafting, sewing, knitting, quilting. And and again, our mission is just to help people create because that's what we're meant to do. 
And and specifically around fabric, I think about the quilts that have been passed through my families and my, my grandma, who would ever she would knit anything for us, she would say, every stitch is a kiss. And, you know, as we're heading into the holiday season here, potentially sentimentality will be at an all-time recent high, I think, with families kind of coming back together. And I feel like the time for quilts uh, and and that emotional, sentimental connection that's possible through these kinds of gifts could be, could be huge. Absolutely. I think legacy is such a huge part of quilting and why it'll be around for another 200 years. When you look at so many hobbies that um, kind of become obsolete, I don't think quilting will because it's the, I mean, you'll never be able to warm yourself with something digital. I mean, you, you, that tactile quilt is, will never be replaced because we still are um, flesh, right? As humans, we need that. And the other thing is, is that if you think about it, quilting is something that can connect you to your ancestors because 200 years ago, many of our ancestors were, were quilting, but it also can connect you to your descendants because it's the kind of thing that you pass on from generation to generation. And so really what you're passing on is a little bit of you and, and your legacy to your grandkids and your great grandkids and their, their kids. And they're going to remember, Hey, you know, my great, great, great grandmother or father made this quilt. Right. And so I, there's just nothing like it in terms of legacy going both up and down in terms of roots. So it is really cool. And, and I think that's why it's going to have some, it has somewhat of an inelastic demand and, and it won't go obsolete. It's just an unbelievable case study in cornering the market on something. The fact that you literally have a town dedicated, uh, you know, to, to your quilting operations. Like, let's talk a little bit about those earlier days. Once, once the YouTube channel started to take off and you start thinking about user acquisition, maybe outside of that, obviously you're going to have a huge, um, you know, boost from that. What have your user acquisition, uh, efforts looked like outside of YouTube and how has YouTube really benefited paid acquisition? Well, to be honest, we didn't even spend a dime on any forms of paid marketing until I think seven or eight years in, believe it or not. And yet we'd grown massive audiences before that. So um, I think that was a real blessing to grow organically. And, and what it, the result of that was an extremely loyal base. I think all of us kind of started this thing thinking, oh, this is a good business opportunity. And here's some good tactics we can use to maybe gain customers. And then what happened is I think about a year or two in, we started getting like hundreds or Jenny started getting, I want to say Jenny started getting hundreds of Christmas cards from people saying, I watch your YouTube channel and I have a disability and it's crippling disability. I don't want to get up every day, but you, you motivate me to get up and do something. And when I create, I feel energy and I feel life and I haven't felt this in years. And thank you, you know, and, and we realized like how meaningful uh, what we do is in people's lives. And it, we were just floored by that. And, um, we just thought we were doing good marketing, but part of our secret sauce, I guess, is just that we're authentic. We're genuine. The, the voice that we, we speak with in our copy and in our, in our tutorials and everything is a very accessible, approachable, um, down-to-earth voice. And in a world where like everybody's airbrushed, everybody's perfect, we're just normal people. And I think people like that. And, and, we, and we do a job for people in their lives. Um, and so as we started to realize that, um, we really tried to tailor all of our marketing efforts around knowing that, that that's part of what we did for people. One of the things I think that really helped launch us actually even probably even more than YouTube in the very beginning was what we call the quilters daily deal. So what it was, and this is again, going back to those three barriers that stop people from wanting to quilt. One of them is cost, like it's too expensive. And so what we did is we kind of just copied this model that we saw. There used to be a site, it probably still exists. Um, I haven't checked it in a while, woot.com. Have you ever heard of that? I know about Woot, but I don't know about the site. Okay, so I don't know what it is today because I haven't checked, but Woot.com at least used to be, may still be. Got bought by Amazon. Okay, but it, is but it, was, there, a, yeah. it was a daily deal site. And I think this company used to just buy overstock products. 
So they buy like 250 duvet covers and they would have this crazy daily deal every day that you could buy it like, you know, a duvet cover for 70% off. And then as soon as that was sold out, they'd switch to the next deal. And every day they'd have this crazy deal and they'd, they'd have some kind of funny story that would go along with the product. And we're like, what a great idea. And so we started the Quilters Daily Deal where we took one product every day and we, we discounted it extremely. Anywhere from 30% off at the low end to 100% off at the high end. There's been times we just gave it for free. And all you had to do was pay the $5 shipping rate and you could only buy one. You couldn't buy multiple. And, and that was it. Like that was the Quilters Daily Deal. And, and that really caught on like wildfire and people told you, oh, you got to check out the Quilters Daily Deal. And that really helped us uh, obtain customers in the beginning. That was pretty critical, as well as YouTube and Facebook starting to take off and, and having this organic presence that we and of people that we could market to, and then collecting emails and, and the other kind of direct consumer channels. So this would be different fabric packs or different, different, you know, just I, I'm, I'm looking like how many SKUs do you have on your site currently? Uh, I don't know. The, I don't know the number right now. At yeah, well, uh, th tens of thousands. Um, tens of thousands. We, yeah. We, I think at the high end we had over thirty thousand SKUs, and I believe now we're at fifteen thousand, uh, approximately, just in Missouri Star Quilt Company. But with with all of our SKUs of all of our companies, I'm sure it's a lot higher. That's impressive. And I wanted to just ask quickly about Magento. Most of the podcast guests that we have on generally are using Shopify. We actually are with Shopify Plus now. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, we started with Magento for many years, and then we actually went to a proprietary site that we completely built ourselves. And we have a great engineer team, uh, engineering the developer team that, uh, that operates. But just recently, actually in the last three or four months, we went to Shopify. And um, I'm sure you've talked to many people. When you go through major migrations, whether it's from Magento to a proprietary site or proprietary site to Shopify, we also went to and did a huge ERP implementation, which is it's sorry, what's ERP again? Enterprise Resource Planning System. So okay. like like Oracle or SAP. Um, Got it. We're on Netsuite, so you probably need like psychological therapy afterwards because ERP it's so stressful. ERP transitions. Every time we go through one of these major transitions always something goes wrong and our site becomes really slow or there's huge amounts of bugs. And I think one of the major advantages going back to earlier of growing our base organically is we have such a loyal base that they, every time this happens, even though they're not happy about it, they always forgive us. And they say, you know what, we, we know you're, you're a family business, you're growing. These are the growing pains. We'll stick with you guys. Like I know it's taking me three weeks to get my package, but we'll, we'll keep shopping from you. And that's been such a blessing of having this very loyal organic base that we built over many, many years. OrderGroove's subscription platform enables merchants to rapidly scale recurring revenue, deliver a superior subscriber experience, and maximize subscriber lifetime value. Leading merchants utilize OrderGroove's powerful tools, promotions, and AI-powered personalization to drive subscriber enrollment, optimize subscriber retention, and increase average order value. Visit ordergroove.com DTC to request a complimentary audit of your existing or future subscription program. So let's dig in on the daily deal a little bit more. You said it instantly gained traction. Do you use that top of funnel as well for, for ads that you run now? Or is it just is it by email? Like talk about how you get the maximum value out of your daily deal. Well, I mean, we send out an email every day to about 500,000 people. Email is our number one source of, of revenue, but we do now use it as a, as a carrot for, for paid campaigns as well. We also, you know, on our Facebook channels, we'll, most days we'll say this is the daily deal today. You can head over and and pick it up. So yeah, I mean we try to really make sure that we get the word out in any way we can. 
but we're really trying to do other interesting things too. We don't want to become too reliant on, on promotional things like that. Like we're really trying to do a lot in terms of product development and, um, you know, especially with exclusive products and other things that will are reasons for people to come, not just some crazy deal every day. You mentioned it earlier about the exclusivity factor with these packages of uh, of fabric, and I feel like there's got to be some, you know, in in the in the streetwear space, which is probably about as far as you could get from the quilting space. It has the same factor, right? People people are doing these drop sales where things will drop, and the hype will be so big that things will sell out super quick. I imagine you're having that organically already. Is there, but is there more you can do to 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 kind of work on that model? Yeah, I mean, like we've got a really good team in place that is just always trying to figure out any other angles that, that we can do to, to get in front of people. And I mean, there's, there probably is a lot more we can do, right? There's one of our cultural tenets is, is innovation, right? We kind of ask ourselves the question, can we do this better? Right? I think that's what causes companies like us to disrupt industries because old guard gets really complacent and just is used to certain margins and certain levels of revenue and they don't really innovate and reinvent themselves. And so, I think that's one of the things that we've been really careful from even day one when we were the disruptor to say, can we do this better? Can we do this better? Can we do this better? We're never thinking that we're done, right? So yeah, I'm sure there's lots of ways we could do it better. So now that you have this incredible organic base, you've got the YouTube channel going, how are you using ads? What, what platforms are you finding the most success with uh, at this point in time? Are you mainly using ads as retargeting methods for all of your organic traffic? Or are you breaking a lot of uh, top of funnel cold traffic as well with this? You know, I'm not super involved with the paid advertising right at, at this moment. I know it's for a fact, it's our second biggest source of, of customer growth. Organic search is our number one for, for acquiring new customers. Organic search is number one. And we've had to be really careful at um, not doing too much branded marketing because we end up just cannibalizing our, our organic. Um, so we do, we do uh, quite a bit with the with paid search and we do quite a bit um, of Google shopping as well. That's one of the, the more successful ones, I believe. I, you know, I wish I could speak more to the specific numbers. We, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have that ready right this second. No worries at all. Um, one just broader sweeping question. You know, you've been doing e-commerce since around when I started in this industry as well. I, I'm curious from your high-level perspective, how has the e-commerce industry really changed since 2008? When we, when we began, what I noticed um, is that. At that time, there was a lot of companies that I think they were taking the old paradigm or the old way of advertising, which was, you know, commercials and jingles and stuff. And they were simply saying, if we put this on social media or, you know, if we put this in an email, like the, like they're like, hey, this is a free way to, to, to directly reach our consumers. If we just, you know, put our ad up there, then, bam, we don't have to pay to get in front of them. And one of the things I think we noticed back then is there were some companies like I, I specifically remember the Old Spice guy. I always like uh, Terry Crews, right? Old Spice. And I just remember thinking, man, these guys get it. Like they get how to make an essentially a commercial that you put on YouTube because what they did is they delivered something valuable to me and they made me laugh my head off today. And whether I shop for Old Spice or not, they, they added value to my day. And then four months later, I switched from Speed Stick to Old Spice. I don't even know why. And I'm like, oh, why am I wearing Old Spice? And it's probably because, you know, I've saw that brand so much. I'm like, oh, I'll give it a try. This smells good or whatever. And uh, I, I still wear Old Spice today, right? And so at, at the very beginning, I think one of the things that we did well is we essentially, when we were doing anything, whether it was copywriting, design, promotions, we asked ourselves the question, what's in it for the customer? What's in it for them? Because if we develop anything and we don't add value to someone's life, 
then we're not doing it right. Now, the, probably the best example of that is our daily deal, right? So we have this daily deal that goes up every single day at midnight and it, and it lasts till midnight. But what we do with it is we write this daily deal story and it's usually two to three paragraphs long and it's something that will elicit emotion, right? We want people to feel something when they read that. We want them to laugh. We want them to cry because it was touching. We want to pique their interest or their intellect. And um, we've gotten thousands of emails from people saying, whether I buy your daily deal or not every day, I get up every morning with my cup of coffee and it's the first thing I read. And so we've created this habit because we've added value through this, really this marketing piece. And I think at the beginning, a lot of companies got that wrong. They didn't add value to people's lives. They simply marketed to them. And I think that over time, I think that a lot of people have kind of got it and they're starting to, you know, you look at the Dove campaigns or, or other, other um, companies that have figured out ways to market in a way that adds value, whether or not you are a patron of that company or not. And so that's one of the major tectonic shifts I've seen. I love it. And when you do that, you just, you, you gain customers with their own momentum as well. They, they with loyalty right. that are going to stick around uh, and, and think of your brand every time they're thinking of, you know, quilt or, or quilt making. And, and they're going to engage with your content and they're going to share it and like it. And you're going to, to get more reach for a lot less money or for free if it's organic, right? So Totally. So at the level you guys are at in terms of your niche, do, who do you view as competitors? So in our sphere, one of our major competitors um, is owned by Amazon. And so they're, they're pretty powerful and they, I, you know, I believe have access to Amazon shipping rates and everything else. And, and so that's a pretty big competitor. I would say st like our, our industry is still actually dominated by the brick and mortar, by, by the Walmarts, by the Joanne Fabrics. So, so they're a little bit more indirect because they're not, they do have somewhat of an online presence, but, uh, but not, you know, still the lion's share of their business is done in stores. Um, but yeah, there's some, there's some pretty, you know, I could name them, but there's some pretty good like, online competitors that we have. I would also say that another indirect competitor is, is just, Anything that people do to scratch that itch to create, right? Now, again, we, we totally support anybody doing anything creative, whether it's quilting or not. But we'd love to convince more people and break down those barriers for more people. Anyone who's ever thought, I'd love to try quilting, we'd love to say, hey, you know those things that are stopping you from trying it? We, we remo we've removed them, come and try it. And so, you know, we really don't want to just keep fighting for a, a bigger slice of this existing market. We want to expand the market. And I think that's one thing that, really differentiates us from a lot of our competitors is that we're really trying to actively expand the market um, through tutorials and, and through other things, right? It's interesting too. You seem to understand uh, that people don't want a two-inch drill bit. They want a two-inch hole in a way, right? So you're going one level deeper than the quilt or the making of the quilt itself all the way to, you know, what people are doing to create um, and, and, and then expanding at that level of root things, which is why the rebrand or the, the additional company of, of creativity Inc. So, so yeah, like we want to help people create, but the other thing we realized is that we do other, have you ever, I don't know if you've ever listened to Clayton Christensen no. um, or read his books. So he wrote the innovators dilemma, very famous author. He actually passed away, I believe last year or maybe the year before, which is too bad. He's such a great author, but just a great business mind. I'd recommend anyone listening to this to check out. He's got lots of YouTube videos about disruption and, and different things. And uh, there was, I remember one thing he talked about once. He was doing a, um, he was doing market research for, I believe it was McDonald's to help them sell more milkshakes or otherwise it was some other fast food chain, but I think it was McDonald's and they couldn't figure out how to do it. And they tried everything. They tried to make them sweeter, chocolatier, bigger, smaller, whatever. They tried all these tactics 
and nothing was really moving the needle. And so Clayton Christensen and his group went in and what they started to do is to interview people that bought milkshakes on their way out of the store. And they basically asked them, we want to find out what job does a milkshake do for you in your life? And people are kind of puzzled at that question. What do you mean? What job does it do for us in your life? And they said, well, okay, if you don't get a milkshake, whatever it is that it does for you, what do you get instead? If you don't get a milkshake in the morning, you know, when you buy this, what other things would you turn to? And they say, oh, you know what? Well, okay, sometimes I get a banana or I get a donut. And what they discovered is that a lot of people buying milkshakes were actually morning commuters. And so when they got a banana, that, that was something they could take on their commute. The problem with the banana though, is that, you know, you have to do something with a peel after. You don't want to put it and forget in the side of your car or they got a donut, but then there was all their hands were all sticky after, or like they had all these different alternatives that would do this, that were supposed to do the same job, which is basically fill their hunger pangs until lunchtime and give them something that they can enjoy on a long, boring commute. Right. And so when they understood that the job, that was the job that people needed. I need something to occupy me during my commute. That's going to stave off hunger pains to lunchtime. And this is what I need. Once they understood that was the job that fundamentally people needed a milkshake to do. That was one cohort. There was other ones they talked about, but in this case, it was the commuters. Then they designed, they, they changed their product accordingly. They made the straw a little bit thinner. So it would take longer to drink it. They put some interesting chunks of fruit so they can kind of play around on their commute. And there's some chunks of fruit. They made those mobile uh, kiosks where you could order and it would be ready for you to go and you could order ahead of time. They did all these things to help people do that job that a milkshake needed to do and their sales rose pretty dramatically. And so we, um, we actually did the same thing with our leadership team. We said, what job do we do? Yes, we sell quilting and fabrics, but why do people buy from us? What jobs at a more base rudimentary level do we do for people in their lives? And we wrote down like 20 or 30 things on a, on a board, on a whiteboard. And we ended up distilling them into three categories or three areas. And when you distilled them down, the three common themes were number one, we help people feel a sense of belonging. Number two, we help people feel emotion. And number three, we give them a unique experience. And yes, we sell fabric, but we do these things at a more base level than even that. And that's why people come to us. And that was pretty revelatory for us because we realized that that's what kind of sets us apart. Like, there's a lot of our competitors that are just a warehouse that sure you can buy what you want, but like they don't make you feel anything. They don't make you feel like you belong and they don't give you any kind of unique experience. It feels like any other e-commerce experience. And that's something that when we realized it, we're like, we make need to make sure that in everything we do, we're infusing those three things because that's what makes us us. And it's a strategic moat that is really hard to, to pierce. And it works across all endeavors you may go in in the crafting space as well, right? It applies to any kind of crafting. Um, I wanted to ask, do you, cause you're, you're in the, you're in a D2C space, but you're in a very you're in a niche down D2C space. Are you like, what are some other D2C brands that you're sort of like keeping your eye on out there that you're sort of impressed with, with how, how they go about their business? Any that you can think of? I, I always thought like the dollar shave club and like some of these products that like some of the ones that I really like because they sort of remind like they're, some of them are kind of one hit wonders, but they remind me of some of the really fun organic advertising. Like I think of like the squatty potty and like how funny that ad was and just how that one video that they put so much um, budget into creating just went so viral. And I'm sure they also put lots of money behind it as well. But I, I think of that kind of stuff. Um, I like those. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, on the top of my head, I can't, I can't think of, I mean, there's lots of companies. I, I love their models and I, I follow them. I'm intrigued by them. I don't know if I'd call them D to C companies like I, you know, but there's, 
I'm fascinated with different business models. I love Indigo's business model. Again, not necessarily specifically because of D2C. Uh, I love Costco. Um, I've been intrigued with the mobile app of McDonald's. I just think it's so good. Um, it, it's bad for me, but it's so good. Like how they, they're just really smart with how they do that. And um, Also, sorry, I meant to ask this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to ask, uh, you know, thinking about the pandemic uh, and, and how that affected so many different businesses across the board for uh, media publishers like us or agencies like Pilot House, uh, it, you know, it was it, it did really well just because e-commerce kind of boomed during this time. I imagine you felt a similar boom being something comforting that people can do at home. Is, is, is that true? Yeah, we were really worried because um, we obviously have a we have a town with like, like I said, 13 stores, hotels, restaurants. And we did literally shut it down from the beginning of the pandemic to the following May. So over a year, we shut the entire town down, zero revenue from that. And so we were worried that it would really affect us. But but like you mentioned, people are stuck quarantine at home and online creating and crafting just took off. And so the the influx of people ordering for that more than made up the uh, the lost revenue from the brick and mortar. So yeah, I know it was it was huge. And I think even further than that, I think why we specifically, I, I'm sure all companies that do what we do benefited, but I think why we specifically benefited is that people didn't just need the supplies to make the stuff because that's what they wanted to do, but people are starting to get depressed and starting to get lonely and they can tune in and watch Jenny and, and really feel that sense of belonging and that emotion that, that I think we do really well. I think that was the second reason why they particularly gravitated towards us and why we were so successful and had you know some amazing um you know, numbers come through during the pandemic. I love it. I, we were just talking about the town and having to like, it's very few companies have to do like ROI studies on the towns that they run. So that's yeah. a pretty unique situation. How, how do you, like, how do you think about the town from a high level and from a, like a profitability standpoint? At first the town, and I, I don't remember how many times, cause you know, in the beginning, none of us took any, any kind of pay from the business for three years. So it was just a labor of love. It was blood, sweat and tears. And I remember how many, so many times, uh, my partner, Sarah, would be like, oh, it would just be so much easier if we were a warehouse. Now, we never were tempted to close down the town because we've always thought that that was a great thing to have. And thank goodness we didn't because number one, from just a purely economic standpoint, the town and online have an inverse relationship. You know, like in any business, you have cyclicality. We, we see that quilting is obviously the biggest when it gets cold. So, you know, as soon as fall starts to, to hit and it gets colder and colder, people start to kind of hibernate, if you will, and they, they lock themselves indoors and they quilt. And as soon as spring comes, we always see a predictable drop in demand just because everyone's like, oh, the sun, I'm going to go outside and do gardening and, you know, spring cleaning and everything. And so I don't, you know, they, they quilt during the, the colder months. And so we can kind of see this. Now, obviously, the, the town is going to have the most traffic during the hot times, right? That's when all the bus tours come and we do big trunk shows and everything. And so they, they have an inverse relationship in terms of, revenue. And so uh, it helps us kind of uh, have more linear revenue as opposed to these big up and down cycles, which is great for staff because we can always have, you know, we can keep people year round and have them do something. So that, that would just from a purely economic standpoint, that's the big advantage. But I'd say the bigger advantage of having a town is that we get to brand ourselves as America's local quilt shop. There's something really powerful about buying from a quilt shop as opposed to a warehouse. The way I think about it is I, I call it like the Hawaii effect. So I have an aunt, my aunt uh, comes from Canada, but she moved to Hawaii when she got married. She married a guy from Hawaii and they just recently moved to Arizona, but she lived there for like 30 years. Um, and it was interesting. She said to me, I love Hawaii. It's a paradise. But the one thing that's kind of 
not great about Hawaii is you've always got in the back of your mind this feeling that you're isolated. She's like, it's, it's interesting. If you took the size of the island of Hawaii and you plopped it right on top of where she was from in Ontario, she's like, very rarely did I ever drive outside that perimeter. Like I never just took off and went to Cleveland or, you know, to Montreal. Like I, I mostly just stayed in that size of the island, right? But just the mental fact of knowing that you could pick up and drive to Kentucky today has value, right? Yeah. Think- Being on an island now, I think about that often. I was just in Ontario for a trip and it's like, hey, I could drive in any direction, northwest, east, south, and I could drive for 10 days. Whereas Absolutely. on the island, it's just like north and south. Yeah. And even though you probably very seldom ever would, just knowing that you could has value. And I think it's similar to like many of our customers have never made the pilgrimage out to our town. A lot of them have, but many, I'd say the, the, the majority have not. But the fact that they know that they could come and they could visit us and they could see Jenny and they could see our staff and give us a hug and maybe not during the pandemic, but, you know, and just really come to the town and see what this, this family and this company has built, I think has tremendous strategic value. It was a huge investment. I mean, we've poured a lot of money into the town. Um, we preserve buildings that are over 100 years old. Many of these buildings we bought for, you know, the real estate is very inexpensive and we put a lot of money and, and, and then we get it appraised and it's worth half of what we put into it because of where it's located, right? If you did that in Toronto or New York or Vancouver, you know, it instantly you double your money, right? But in this market, you can't, right? So it really is, we really are investing for our customers. It's not a real estate play, right? This town has become a huge advantage to us existing because of the, because we can, because we're America's local quilt shop. You can and come and see us if you want, even if you never do. Could it be a real estate play over time? And the only reason I ask is just because I think about the trend of small town America, small town Canada sort of being decimated and and increasingly so, I think, in, in the coming years. So to kind of reverse that trend and actually build up a town where you have people who have renewed vigor or, you know, the meanings to their lives or whatever, living in Quilt Town, USA, is a pretty positive trend overall. And I wonder, you know, if you're getting, you know, tens of thousands of people through here every summer, will it raise up the value of the town eventually? You'd have to think so. Oh, I absolutely will, right? And and that's, I think, one of the big, from a PR perspective, bucking that trend of urbanization has been huge PR angle. I mean, we've, we've been on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. We've been on the Today Show, the NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. We've literally been on some big, giant <laughs> outfits to, to talk about what we do. And, and part of what they're really interested in is this is this exception to the rule of small town, ta- like small towns bleeding jobs. Like, you know, Walmart opens up 10 minutes down the road and the hardware store closes down and this store closes down and the local grocery store closes down. When the mill closes down, right? And I have to, th- I was thinking about that also. I'm like, I bet a quilt town produces a nicer civic environment than a mill town. Or, and I don't know, I don't, don't that's, I don't want to be judgmental, but y- you know, you just have to think when, when you've got these young vital entrepreneurs like you guys are building this thing, it's going to have positive impacts throughout the town. Absolutely. And, and just having our customers are some of the nicest people you're ever meet. Of course. Like, quilters. Really like, and quilters, one of the things I think is really cool about quilters is that when you first start quilting, the first thing you do is you make a quilt for yourself and you're like, oh, I love it. This is my quilt. And then you make ones for all of your family. So you make one for every one of your kids, every one of your grandkids and for your brother and sister and, and all of your family. And then everyone has one or two quilts. Then you're like, geez, I don't have anyone else to make quilts for. So then what they start to do is they make quilts and they donate them to charity and to hospitals and stuff. And, and so it actually, the hobby ends up taking you from the inside out and really doing, thinking about other people. And so 
I just think by nature, quilters are some of the kindest people you ever meet. And so to have so many people from all around the world coming to this town, like it's, it's actually sometimes unreal to, to be in Hamilton, Missouri and to just think there's, there's someone here from, you know, England. We have people that come to our town and they say, I had two things on my bucket list in the US, Graceland and Missouri Star Quilt Company. And we're like, okay, we're up there with Graceland. Like, that's just weird. Like, but, but cool at the same time. And it's just unbelievable. I'm blown away to think that people come from all around the globe to come to this place that, that literally no one would probably come to otherwise. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. It was pretty cool. The Graceland of quilts, the Disneyland of quilts, Quilt Town USA. Uh, what an amazing story. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, David. This was super interesting. Yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity to do it. Hopefully uh, was able to, to tell the story the way that uh, – made it interesting for your viewers. And there's some, some marketing nuggets in there. If people want to like, you know, we, we've sort of determined that if you're going to start making quilts, you're going to make the world a better place. So if you want to start making some quilts uh, or you want your parents to start getting into quilting in their older age, go to MissouriQuiltCo.com right now. Thanks so much for coming on today. This was awesome. Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the DSE Podcast. We'll see you next time.